Well, good morning. It is a uh, delight. Laramie Valley Chapel is one of my favorite places in the world, and the ministry partnership that uh, our seminary back in uh, Cary, North Carolina, has been able to affect is just one of the really most productive and delightful partnerships. So it's just such a delight to be with you. And uh, you know the expression, preaching to the choir, right? Uh, trying to talk people into what they're already committed to. You're the choir, I'm the preacher, okay? But uh, because this is a church which happily and deliberately is committed to the entire scriptures and teaching the entire scriptures, but uh, that is not always the case. And I'll tell you something, I'm kind of uh, cheating here a little bit because I'm teaching Old Testament introduction for a couple of weeks here to the West Institute, and one of the lectures or discussions we need to have is based around a chapter in a book called Toward Rediscovering the Old Testament by Walt Kaiser. And the name of the chapter is The Old Testament, colon, The Christian Problem. And he argues that there's never been a heresy which has infected the Christian community at large that doesn't find its, its genesis in a, in a carelessness about the Old Testament. That if we knew the Old Testament, we wouldn't get such trouble in the New Testament. And, and for that reason and many others, it's just so imperative that Christians uh, learn and study and cherish the Old Testament. We are New Covenant believers, that is, we are beneficiaries of New Covenant blessings which were provided for us at the cross. Amen and amen. And there is a body uh, of literature, 27 books, which we call the New Testament. What's another word for testament? Covenant. So that is New Covenant literature. And that's where our hearts and our minds go most immediately. That's where we find the most uh, immediate connection and so on. As a matter of fact, there's a bit of a culture and theological shock when you go into the Old Testament, but uh, I'm here to encourage you this morning to be really, really committed to knowing the Old Testament. And, and it's not an odious assignment, I'll tell you something. Uh, it, it is absolutely delightful. Uh, to make my point, I'll be very quick, and Paul pointed out to me that this is a uh, body that ought to understand this, but I think most of you, if I, I want, matter of fact, I'm going to do it. See if you can say with me the, uh, the second stanza of Robert Robinson's hymn, Come Thou, Fout. I'll, Come Thou Fount. I'll start it. Say it with me. Here I raise, can you keep going now? Hither by thy help I'm come, and I trust by thy good pleasure. You know, one of the really amazing things here is he almost rhymed something with Ebenezer, for heaven's sakes. But, and I trust by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Now, I want to ask you to do it, but I have your hymnal right here, the one in front of you. And uh, on page two is Come Thou Fount. This is a more modern hymnal. Here's the second verse. Hitherto thy love has blessed me, thou hast brought me to this place, and I know thy hand will bring me safely home by thy good grace. Now, I frankly regard that as perfectly insipid poetry, but the reason is because I'm struck by the absence of Ebenezer. What happened to Ebenezer? It's gone. They've taken it out. You won't find it in most modern hymnals. Why? Well, I haven't taken a survey, but I presume that it's because modern hymn publishers are concerned that the Christian public for whom they are producing those hymns will be totally befuddled and unedified by a reference to Ebenezer. They won't know what to do with Ebenezer. Like I said, it'll take them straight to Christmas Carol and Charles Dickens and so on. They won't be able to get past it. Well, listen, now you have an Ebenezer stone out in your parking lot, for heaven's sakes. So may your tribe increase. But I'll tell you very quickly, here's, here's my concern. Uh, 
that reference, it's from 1 Samuel chapter 7, and it happens to be the culmination, the peroration of one of the most important, yea, verily, I could say the pivotal story of the Old Testament. I won't rehearse the story, but very, very quickly, it's where the, the, the Israelites carry the ark of the Lord into battle. And I always like to say, if when I talk here about the ark of the Lord, you're thinking of a really big boat, you really need to spend more time in the Old Testament, I'm telling you. But at any rate, this is, of course, that most precious piece of uh, covenant furniture, which was spirited into battle and uh, captured by the Philistines and then recaptured re and brought home by Yahweh. And then Samuel, oh, what a hero in the Old Testament, goes for 20 years up and down the countryside preaching, put away your bales and your asherahs, serve God, Israel repents, repents. they gather, uh, the Philistines attack, God sends a rumbling in the earth, the Philistines are destroyed, and Samuel wants that generation to remember. So he raises a stone. This is what they would do, just as you have done. And uh, it was just, uh, in this case, probably a huge stone that, that was obviously raised up by human hands. And, uh, and, 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 and the point is that it was, it was more than a memorial stone. It wasn't, always, it wasn't just to remind you of the great victory that God had given over the Philistines. It was, it was to communicate this message. Look what God did. Why don't we trust him to take us the rest of the way? That's what the, the and, and of course he named that stone Ebenezer. And, and every translation read, leave it there. So it's not that it's been lost because it's Hebrew. The, the fact is that, that, as I say, and I think they're probably unfortunately right, that they know that Christians won't be able to handle a reference to Ebenezer. The answer is not to excise any such reference from our hymns, it's to teach Christians the Old Testament. And, we, and, and, and that passage is, it's a whole, there's a pivot point, that 1 Samuel 4, 7 passage. All right, I leave it alone. I am just going to encourage you uh, to make it your deliberate, intentional business to know more about, to understand the Old Testament better next week than you do this week, every week of your life. Just spend time in it and grow. You can't do it overnight, it's, 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 and I think uh, the book will be the object of our study throughout eternity, for that matter, but, but in this life, do everything you can. And let me tell you why I think it's so important. First of all, obviously the Old Testament, the 39 books that are more difficult to us, and some of them are really quite difficult, but well, they're not, I don't mean to make too much of it, but, but they're not intuitive. You can't sit down and read them like a comic book. You're going to have to spend some time with them. There are cultural illusions and factors and so on you're going to have to familiarize yourself with. But clearly, folks, can we not all agree that the Old Testament is, in fact, Scripture? And it is a portion of Scripture, hold on to your hats, write this down somewhere, that came before the New Testament, right? Now, that becomes important because of a... Biblical principle, and, and, and I know you're familiar with it, and we've, I've talked about it to you before, but I'll be quick, but a biblical principle that you really need to consciously understand and make part of the way you read the Bible. And that principle is called progressive revelation. And by progressive revelation, I like to say, all we're saying is, this is my silly way of saying it, but that God did not back the 18-wheeler of revelation up to the Garden of Eden and just whoosh, bump it on him and say, okay, you sort it out. God is an infinitely wise teacher. He knows that he is working with almost infinitely slow students. And so God has, as a wise teacher, parceled out. You know, by the way, this is revelation. What is revelation? 
It's the way I like to say it. If we're going to know God, he's got to take the initiative because we are twice crippled, right? We are finite. We could not know God. We are fallen. We're not interested in knowing God. We're fleeing. Now, a gracious God has taken the initiative, and he has revealed. The, 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 the Greek word, as you're probably familiar for revelation, is apocalypsis, apocalypse, and it means to unveil. So that's what's going on here. This God who is more interested to know us and to be known by us than we are to know him has taken the initiative and the revelation which he has given mankind is carefully, authoritatively, inerrantly recorded in this book. But he has done it progressively. And so he, he gives a, a, a measure of truth. And, 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 and by the way, you can trace this in the, in, in the Bible. It hasn't been a steady trickle. There have been in seasons, uh, in, in, in seasons of sacred history as recorded in the Bible. This is not hard to ferret out. There have been seasons of revelatory activity. God gives truth. Men are stewards of that truth. Now he gives more truth. I like to think of it as a stair step. I just think a stair step is helpful here because God is bringing us forward. But, and, and, and so what is it that brings us from here to here? It's greater revelation. Now, that's the progress of revelation. That makes sense to you. He's, he's parceled revelation out in, in I don't want to say bite-sized, but handleable stages, and he's given men, rebellious men to be sure, but nonetheless, he has worked in such a way that men embrace and understand that truth, and then he gives greater truth. It's always from truth to greater truth. It's never from error to truth. It's always from truth to greater truth. But what does this mean? It means that wherever you are in the Bible, God expects you to bring with you everything he already said. Now, to make this point, I like to go to Hosea 2 in verse 15. Look at it real quickly. I won't spend a lot of time with it. Hosea, this marvelous prophet who uh, ministered uh, just about the time that the northern kingdom was going to fall, the days of Jeroboam. And Hosea was called upon. Hosea's right after Ezekiel. Uh, I'm sorry, after Daniel. Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea. And uh, after that, I have more trouble, to be honest with you. But... Uh, Hosea 2, and you have, uh, and remember that Hosea had been called upon, he'd been demanded, God had demanded, you know, by the way, like I got time for by the ways, by the way, but uh, uh, it wasn't easy being a prophet of God, and uh, they were spokesmen, and because they usually ministered at a time when Israel was hard, God would, would demand of them really dramatic and sometimes horribly painful and sacrificial uh, acts in order that they might get the attention. A lot of times it had to do with the, with the, with the family. Remember, Jeremiah was not allowed to, to marry. Ezekiel, this is a tough one. Remember Ezekiel? Ezekiel ministered at the time when the temple was going to be destroyed, and God was in that, and even though it was his house, he said, I don't want you to mourn it. And to make that point, he said, Ezekiel, I am going to take from you the desire of your eyes with a stroke, and you are to neither, you're neither to, to, to bare your head, you're not to weep. And then the next verse says, that night my wife died. And the next day he went back to work. That's asking a lot. So God sometimes demanded a great deal of these prophets in order to make the point dramatically. That, and Hosea was to marry a woman of harlotry. And had three children, had to give them bizarre names and so on. But the point is that God promised that I'm going to restore all that. In other words, uh, all right, now I brought it up. Why marry a woman of harlotries? Because Israel had played the harlot against Yahweh. So what happens is Hosea's wife plays harlotry. She finds herself sold into slavery, and Hosea is told to go back and purchase her from that slave market and then to 
set her aside for a period of reprobation and, and, and restoration and so on, and, and then to take her once again as his, his wife. By the way, there's a big argument today over whether or not God is done with Israel. Where'd this come from? But book want to go across the street to talk about this, as you know. But remember this, there was not a second Mrs. Hosea, right? That's the whole point. That, and, just, and that's his point. Israel, in spite of all of its wickedness and hardness, even though she's going to have to be set aside for a time, can you imagine that, Romans 9? That's what's going on right now. God is going to win her to himself because he's a covenant-keeping God. Not because of some merit in her, but because God is determined to put on display his covenant-keeping character. But I lose my way, don't I? The fact of the matter is that here in Hosea, he is making this promise. All I want you to see, one skinny little, I told myself, don't talk about it, just, but I talked about it. But Hosea 2 and verse 15, you have this remarkable little phrase. And all I want you to see, what am I saying to you? Because I lost my way entirely. I'm saying that wherever you are in the Bible, God just expects you to bring with you everything he already said. And here you have this remarkable, and it's poetic, it's evocative, it's instructive, but it is meaningless if you don't remember what came before because he says, this is in the promise of restoration. In verse 15, I will give her vineyards from there, and he says this, I will give her the valley of Achor as a door of hope. Now that is such a, a, a beautiful, it just explodes with meaning. There is so much there in those very few words. But it only works if you know what happened in the Valley of Achor. What is the Valley of Achor? That's Achan, Joshua chapter 6. After they discovered, they, I'm sorry, uh, yeah. After they conquered I, uh, no, it's 7 and 8. After they conquered Jericho, they went up against I and were rebuffed because Achan had stolen the wedge of gold. Remember that? And they were defeated. And what did it take in order for God to be able to bless them? They had to ferret out the sinner. They had to punish him accordingly. In other words, God had to purge the sin from the people before he could bless. So the only door of hope is the valley of trouble is what it means. So, so the point is that God, God is making a hugely important point that, that, that explodes in a lot of different directions, and he makes it simply by saying, I'll give you the valley of Achor as a door of hope. But that, he doesn't stop and talk about the Valley of Achor. He doesn't tell you that story. Why? Because he already told you that story. Wherever you are, in much more profound ways than that, God expects you to bring with you what he already said. Does that make sense to you? And you are going to be, and I go back to Kaiser's point, heresy after heresy can be traced to trying to handle the New Testament. Here, I'll give you an example. Should I finish that thought? Trying to handle the New Testament without knowing the Old Testament. And you've got to be able to think in Old Testament terms when you read the New Testament. I'll give you an example. What's the first grand heresy, perhaps? Well, okay, the, grand, the one we usually think of is the first grand heresy that erupted in, in, in the Christian community was the denial of Jesus' deity, right? That was developed by a man named Arius. He was a bishop. He was a Christian bishop. But he's reading his New Testament, and he reads that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, he's thinking in Greco-Western, uh, uh, Greco-Roman Western categories. What is a son? A son is a first-generation male offspring. So the son was brought into existence definitionally by the father. So he argued that Jesus was created. That was his whole argument. His whole argument was, it says he's the son of God. All right. 
What does son mean in the Bible? S-O-N, bane in the Old Testament, bar, huios in the New Testament. Look, and that's the extent of my, I'm not showing off there. But, but the point is, uh, the fact is, and I've used this illustration here before, but I'll be quick with it. John, Bragg, you have three sons, right? How old is Riley? You have four? What do you say? You have four sons. I lost track of one. Riley's the oldest, right? Huh? Jake. Oh, Jake. I don't know. Uh, all right. Good. How old's Jake? 19. And the other three, how old's Riley? Six. So in a Hebrew setting, if you were to say to, to John and Jessica, do you have any sons? They'd say, yeah, we got one. Jake. We got three boys, and they're going to grow up and become sons. When do they become sons? At the bar mitzvah. That's when the boy becomes a son. Now that, that just permeates so much, and there are so many word pictures and ideas that, that are so intrinsic to the Jewish culture and thought that arise from that whole bar mitzvah deal. But here's the thing. One of the most important dynamics, or, or, or one of the most important dynamics of what it means for a boy to become a son is that once he becomes a son, he is regarded as the equal of his father. And for that reason, I mean, this is absolutely, I could tell you story after story, it shows up in the Bible and so on. Paul builds on this in, his, in Galatians 3 and 4, where he's talking about the transition from law to grace and so on. You were like boys, even though you were heirs, you were treated like servants, but now you have become what? Sons. And now that you are sons, you have this standing of, of maturity and so on. And, and, and it's so basic to Jewish mind and culture that to be a son of is to be one with or equal with or to be identified with. But all throughout the scriptures, in the Old and New Testament, scores and hundreds of times, the word son is used to mean one with or equal to. So Judas is the son of perdition. Is that saying something about his parents? Of course not. It means he's bound for perdition. Jesus told the the Pharisees, his enemies, during his, late in his life on Matthew 23, he said, look, you build great monuments to the prophets, and you're trying to make the point that if you'd have been alive back then, you wouldn't have killed your prophets like your fathers did, and yet you go around to kill me. And therefore, you prove that you are indeed the sons of your fathers. Now, it has nothing to do with lineage. Nobody's arguing about whether they're really physically the sons of their fathers. You are one with your fathers. This is just all over the place. When David was told the little story about the man with the one ewe lamb, the false story by Nathan, and he, he got upset. And he said, bring that man in here, and here's what the English says, he shall surely die. You know what the Hebrew says? He is the son of death. He is one with death. This is all throughout the scriptures. To a Jewish mind, and, and you read the New Testament, there's no doubt. Look, look, would the Jewish people crucify a man proclaiming that he was created by God. And yet, John 19, 7, if you won't crucify him as a seditionist, we have a law, and by our law, he has to die because he made himself the son of God. What are they angry about? He is claiming to be one with God. That's foreign to you. See what I'm saying to you? If you think, oh, I got three or four illustrations in my head and I don't have time for them, but if you read the Old Testament, so I'm saying that, that, the, wherever you are, you need to bring the, the, what he has already said. And furthermore, 
the, uh, I'm checking here, I'm in such trouble. Eeks. All right. The, uh, the New Testament writers wrote in Greek, but they thought in Hebrew. They're, 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 and, and you know what? When you are in the New Testament, wherever you are, whatever you're reading about, whatever story, whatever point is being made, assume that there is some New Test, Old Testament story that lays behind. You just haven't found it yet. I mentioned last hour that I love uh, in, in uh, you know, in, in Saul of Tarsus, who's going to become Paul the Apostle. Saul of Tarsus gets saved in chapter 9, and he, he uh, joins Barnabas, and, and uh, in chapter 13 he's set out, and his name is Saul. That's all Luke, the author of Acts, ever calls him. But all of a sudden, in Acts 13, on the island of Cyprus as he's ministering, Luke simply says this, he's gonna, Paul is going to confront a, 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 a wicked heretic, and, he, and, and Luke says this, Paul, parenthesis, who was also called, not Paul, bookman shame, Saul, the, story, the, the, the name is Saul, Saul, parenthesis, who is also called Paul. From that moment, Paul is never, ever, just a couple of times where he's telling his own story about when he was, when he was a persecutor, but otherwise, he's always Paul. So the question arises, where, how come, why did it happen? The standard, I don't think this is true, but the standard explanation is that probably when he was a boy, he was given two names, a Gentile name and a Hebrew name. I don't think so, for any number of reasons I won't get into. Look at first, I'll read it to you, but look at 1 Samuel 15, if you want, real quickly. This is the story of Saul of Tarsus's namesake, King Saul, the first king. And uh, you remember uh, Saul was guilty of a couple of serious sins for which God removed the, 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 uh, the crown from him and is going to give it to David. But uh, the second of his two great sins recorded in 1 Samuel, there are many, but the two great sins that caused God to take the throne from him recorded in 1 Samuel 15. And uh, Saul had been told, King Saul now in the Old Testament had been told to go and to wipe out a city of Amalekites. He didn't. He took spoil. And Samuel the prophet comes and confronts him. And uh, Saul says, I've done everything. And Samuel says, I'm hearing some sheep here. You didn't take those sheep to battle. What's going on here? You didn't obey. And he tells him he's going to be judged and the throne's going to be taken immediately from him. But in, in rebuking him, Samuel the prophet says to Saul the king, and I love this, he says in verse 17 of 1 Samuel 15, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of the king of Israel? And I think the point is God is saying there quite clearly, when you were little, I could use you. But because I gave you a place of honor, you became caught up with yourself. I think this New Testament Saul, Saul of Tarsus, who has been wondrously saved, and by this time in Acts 13 has already been caught up into the third heaven, has spent time with God, has already... Uh, he, he knows that he's going to be given a significant, has been, and will exercise a, a, a remarkable leadership. And he struggles with pride. He knows he struggles with pride. He, God gave him, we're going to be told later, a, uh, a, a thorn in the flesh to help him. And I think on the basis of that verse there, I think Paul, Saul, Saul of Tarsus, probably thought, I need a way to remind myself. So he took the name Paul, because I should tell you, the name Paul means little. The Greek word Paul, Paul means little. And so I think Paul, Saul of Tarsus, determined that he would, uh, he, he would give himself a name wherein every day, every time somebody just called him by name, he would be reminded of how important it was to be little in God's eyes, to be little in his own eyes. So what am I saying? 
when, 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 uh, when Jesus says, you know this verse in the Sermon on the Mount, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things. I think there's an Old Testament story that's behind that and that Jesus intends us to bring with us when he, tell, when, when, when he says that. And I won't say any time, it's the story of young Solomon who has just been made king and he goes to a place called Gibeon and he makes all these sacrifices and he falls on his knees and he says, God, I'm but a youth, I can't do this. And God said, well, and he said, I'm here to rule on your behalf, I want your kingdom to prosper, it's your kingdom and not mine, give me wisdom. You remember what God said? Because you have not asked for the death of your enemies, you haven't asked for silver and gold, you haven't asked for fame and fortune. I'm going to give you the wisdom that you asked for, but I'm going to give you what? All these other things. So because Solomon sought first the kingdom and God's righteousness, God gave him all these things. That's the verse that informs, that's the passage, that's the story. Does that make sense to you? Wherever you are, now i got one other point I want to make, but first of all, let me just say this. I've got to be done. Let me get really practical with you. What do you do about this? You know, Bookman, okay, what do you do? Well, number one, you read the Old Testament, obviously. I would encourage you, again, I hope I'm not in trouble here, but don't make a read it through your only reading of the Old Testament. Don't read it primarily devotionally. Don't sit down and ask, what does this mean to me? I always tell people, you sit down and read the Bible and ask, what does it mean to me? Shame on you. The first question you have to ask is, what does it mean? And that means, what did the original author intend the original reader to hear? Now again, I always want to say, if you get up having figured out what it means without asking what it means to me, shame on you once again, but you won't have to. Read the passage, in it, read it in its own culture. I didn't plan this, but honest to goodness. And, and I can't spend any time with it, but we would love to have you go with us to Israel. But there is no better way to come to really kind of quickly understand the culture out of which the Bible is not culture-bound. It'll work in any culture. It is culture-based. Those stories happened in a culture very different from your own, and you are going to intuitively and cripplingly take your culture to those stories. You've got to learn to think of it. Read about that culture. Study that culture. Read a good study Bible that will explain some of the cultural niceties as you go. Uh, read chronologically. Uh, as you read, make up your mind. And, and, and I say, don't be in a hurry. That's the problem with the read it through is you've got, got to get through all these chapters. That's good. That's a very good exercise. and You ought to do it. But take some time to say, all right, I am going to study the monarchy. I'm going to study First Second Samuel, First Kings. I'm going to understand where it goes, where it sits there. I'm going to read those books, then I'm going to read them again. You know what else? Listen. The Bible is so accessible on tape. Do you know, the, or you know, recorded? You just get it off the iPad or whatever. The Bible was meant to be read aloud. That was an oral culture, and it is a delight to listen to. I listen more than I read anymore. I listen pretty constantly, and uh, but I listen carefully. And I might, might be at night and I might fall asleep. But then when I wake up again, I start listening. But the point is, as you read, tell yourself, I'm going to, uh, when I have questions, I'm going to get them answered. Keep a journal and, and, and say, okay, I need to get this question. I'm confused about that. There are all sorts of immediately accessible uh, electronic helps. Not all of them are as good as others, to be honest with you. But all right, leave it alone. Here's where I'm taking it. This, we're done. 
I'm saying that, folks, make it your business, your deliberate commitment to, to become a, an ever better student of the Old Testament. Because, number one, God expects you to. That's the way how he has revealed himself. And what he says in the New Testament, he expects you to understand the light of the Old Testament. Because understanding the New Testament itself is going to be dependent upon your ability to think in terms that are defined and laid down in the Old Testament. You've got to say it, but there's one other reason. And that is this, and this is a passion with me. Folks, you and I, as I say, are beneficiaries. I'm going to say this carefully. There's some theological cross-currents we haven't got time to get into. But you and I are beneficiaries of new covenant blessings by reason of the cross. And when you go to Jeremiah 31, which is the definitive old, uh, new covenant passage, and then Ezekiel 36 that builds on that, there are two basic blessings. As, all right, let's ask it this way. How are you advantaged? The Bible, you got the book of Hebrews, and the, and the book of Hebrews says what God did before was wonderful, but what we got today is better. All right, how are you advantaged to live on this side of the cross? As a new covenant believer or a, a beneficiary of new covenant, I would say two primary blessings. Number one, and this we don't think about this, and we should. Number one, the confidence that your sins are once and all forgiven. That is entirely on this side of the cross. Moses never knew that. Isaiah never knew that. They had to go back again. This is Hebrews 10. This is why they had to go back again and again and again because there always was another sacrifice. There has been offered up a sacrifice so complete, so total, that it fully satisfies the holiness of God once and for all. The Old Testament saint didn't know that. This is why, by the way, Hebrews 10 makes a point of this, that in the tabernacle temple there was never any sort of seat or bench because if there were, the priest might sit down and some worshiper might mistakenly assume that his work was done. His work was never done. Jesus offered himself up, and then what did he do? He sat down. That's the point. The work is done. Now, that's so much a part of your birthright, you can't even think of the gospel without, but think of all those generations who never had. Now, I could spend a lot of time talking about the confidence they did have in a wonderful thing, but they did not have the objective, sacrificial testimony, that is a, a te the, 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 the sacrifice of an infinite God-man sacrifice to, to give them the confidence their sins were once and for all. Forgiven. The second blessing is this. It is the remarkable, intimate relationship which the Spirit of God ministers to us on the basis of Jesus' finished work. And the best way I know to give expression to it is that in the Old Testament, I cannot find any place where an individual Old Testament saint, as godly as he might be, ever speaks of God, of Yahweh, as his Father. He knows him as his creator and as his deliverer and his friend and his shepherd, all sorts of figures, wonderful figures. But I think the Old Testament saint, and by the way, that God, that Yahweh God, had taken up his, midst in, his, his, his presence in the middle of Israel, and he invites you to come. And that's a gracious, gracious invitation. But you only come so far. You only come to the outer court. You never go into the holy place. And you only come through the agency of a priest. You only come with, a, with an animal sacrifice. And, and, and you're going to have to come again when, when, when your life demands it for whatever. Now my point is that they, God revealed himself in so many ways. But they, I think the Old Testament saints' ears would rattle to hear anybody speak of Yahweh your father.
And yet by reason of New Testament revelation and the ministry of the Spirit, we know Yahweh, not only as Father, but as Abba, as Papa. That ought to just draw you up short. Papa, that's amazing. That is a level of intimacy that it took the finished work of Jesus Christ to provide you, and now it belongs to you, and here's my point. I think with that remarkable intimacy comes a besetting sin, and we see it all about us. And that is a real carelessness about the unspeakable majesty and holiness and transcendent character of that God who has invited us to join him. Uh, to, to, to enjoy that fellowship. And the measure of carelessness and flippancy that you see in so many quarters about the character of this Yahweh God with whom you enjoy that relationship is staggering. But God has given one antidote, and that's the Old Testament. And what I'm saying to you is I think it is very, very dangerous to pretend that we can wallow in the blessed intimate relationship which God has offered us in this age if we don't saturate our soul spirits with what God has already taught us about who he is in that Old Testament. That makes sense to you? Saturate your mind and your soul spirit with those psalms as they celebrate who this God is, with these marvelous narratives where God puts himself on display. Take the Old Testament with you. All right, we're late. Father, thank you again for the time together for this well-taught, God-blessed congregation. Pray that each one of us individually, before you, would commit ourselves to being the kind of stewards you have called us to be with, with regard to all of your scripture. What a delightful stewardship is it is. There's nothing odious or heavy about it. It is such a, a sweet, sweet responsibility. But we are given to carelessness. Help us to be the more careful about becoming students of that marvelous portion of your word. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen.